Tis of a lady both young and fair As she walked out for to take the air She met a sailor on her way So I paid attention So I paid attention To hear what they would say He says fair maiden why roam alone The day is past and the night coming on She said while tears from her eyes did flow Tis my dark-eyed sailor Tis my dark-eyed sailor Who has proved my overthrow Tis too long years since he left this land A gold ring he took from off my hand He broke the token, his half with me While the others rolling While the others rolling In the bottom of the sea Said William, drive him out of your mind As good as he him you'll find Love turns aside And cold does grow Like a winter's morning Like a winter's morning Inclined to frost and snow These words did Phoebe's heart inflame She says with me He will play no game She drew a dagger And thus did cry for my dark-eyed sailor, for my dark-eyed sailor, the maid I'll live and die. Oh, his coal-black eyes and his curling hair, his prattling tongue did my heart ensnare. Unlike he was no rake like you to advise a maiden, to advise a maiden. To slide his jacket blue When William did the ring unfold, she seemed distracted twixt joy and woe, saying, Welcome, William, I've land and gold for my dark-eyed sailor, for my dark-eyed sailor, so manly, true, and bold. In a cottage down by the riverside, in unity, While your love's away For a cloudy morning For a cloudy morning Oft breaks a pleasant day
That's Dark Eyed Sailor, sung by Kate McLeod. It's one of over 250 songs from Carrie Grover's family collection. Welcome to the fourth episode in this series of podcasts depicting the life and music of Carrie Grover. All of the songs mentioned or recorded for this podcast are available for free download on my website, www.carriegroverproject.com where you'll find a wide range of songs that were sung and handed down for generations within Grover's family. There are sailing songs, songs learned in lumber camps, those of unrequited love and banishment, battle songs, slave songs, ballads, and a good handful that do not appear in print anywhere else. The versions Carrie learned through her family and ancestors are unique. So while you may recognize a song title, you'll likely discover an unfamiliar variant. I'm Julie Mainstone Sabas, the creator of this folk music project. In this episode, we return to Sunken Lake in the Black River region of Nova Scotia, a rural farming community where Carrie Spinney was born in the summer of 1879 and where her early memories were steeped in music and childhood merriment. Sunken Lake itself is roughly a mile long, half a mile wide, and about 20 feet deep. It was surrounded by bushes and trees, with the shore road wrapped most of the way around its perimeter, and a handful of homes scattered throughout. The old rock house where Carrie's father was raised lie on the eastern shore, and her mother, Eliza Long's childhood home, stood on the north end. At the southern end of the lake... On a rise above Shore Road stood the two-story wooden house her father George had built with timber he'd felled and planked himself. This is the home where all nine of the Spinney children were raised and where young Carrie's musical life was anchored. I consulted two maps during my research. The first is a map of Kings County made in 1872 by Ambrose Church showing the roads and rivers running by Sunken Lake. There are dots with property owners' names printed beside them, and G. Spinney is clearly marked. The Gasparo River and the Little River appear, as does a road leading to the blacksmith in White Rock Mills, a five-mile walk from the Spinney's house where they also picked up their mail at the post office and stopped in at the general store for George's favorite tobacco, Eliza's tea, and candy, flour, and other basic supplies. People walked in those days, Carrie wrote, and her sister Bertha thought nothing of walking there and back to pick up the mail. The second map is one Carrie drew from memory in 1945 at age 66. Her sketch shows the lake with squares representing the homes of her aunts, uncles, grandparents, and neighbors. She drew the road that led to the schoolhouse and Baptist church, clearly shown on the other map as well, and the road to her father's mill on the Little River and to Moosehorn Lake. She labeled the site where her mother did the weekly washing beside the lake, where the rose bushes grew along the fence, and the wide, flat rock that jutted out into the lake where she liked to play. The two maps sync up nicely, one by a 19th-century cartographer, the other from a childhood memory. In her memoir, she wrote, I've always been glad that I belonged to a large family. I was the youngest of nine children, you know. We were more clannish than a good many families that I've known. We might laugh at each other's mistakes, but we could laugh just as heartily at our own. We weren't very rich as far as money goes, to be sure, but we had as much as most, and more than some others, so we never let that fret us much. 
Thank goodness we all had a sense of humor which eased us over many hard bumps in life's road. The Spinney household bustled and hummed with family life. She was surrounded by melody and song and naturally began soaking it up from an early age. Some member of the family was singing most of the time, she said, and she could not remember a time when she did not know all the tunes and some of the songs that she heard sung so often. Everyone who could sing would, even those who couldn't carry a tune. Her older brothers and sisters considered it a huge joke to teach her songs when she had no idea of the meaning of the words, but anything with a pretty tune she could learn very quickly, and many an undeserved cuff on the ear she received from an older brother for singing bits of songs he thought too rough for little girls to sing. Her father used to say, in deep disgust, "'All is fish that comes to her net.'" No one interfered with the singing unless mother had a headache and no one was allowed to sing anything but hymns on Sunday, and they were never allowed to sing before breakfast. These are the sorts of things that Carrie, years later, either told her daughter directly or wrote to her in letters. Eventually, a 67-page document chock full of stories and family history was created. It formed the backbone of these podcasts and is a central source of my information. Through it, I've come to closely know her people, their way of life, and daily comings and goings that were the backdrop for their music. While I've selected information I deem most pertinent in conveying their story, there are many more which I've not included. In this document, she describes her mother, Eliza Long. Mother was at least a full head taller than father, and had dark eyes and hair as black as a raven's feather. She was apt to take a pessimistic view of anything, a trait which she must have inherited from her father, Joseph Long. She was a capital hand in a sick room, however. She seemed to have a way with her sick folks and children, for she'd put aside her pessimistic air and become as merry and cheerful as you could imagine. She always had some merry tale to tell which would make a body laugh, no matter how deep in the dumps they were. I've heard her say that she could recall at least 40 cases where she was called to attend women when their children were born, when there was no doctor to be had. I remember at home that it made no difference what ailed any of us. Mother always knew of some remedy to relieve us, and many are the vile-tasting concoctions which we had to swallow. She'd brew up a mess of herbs, a pinch of this and a dash of that, and then she'd stand over us with the command, Now then, downhouse with it. Eliza had gleaned her methods from her mother, Margaret Hutchinson Long, who'd been taught healing remedies from a traveling doctor and combined them with what she'd learned from the native Micmacs and their ancient knowledge of the healing properties of plants, barks, and roots. Eliza had no tolerance for laziness. She taught this and other virtues through rhymes such as this one. Laziness is an awful thing. It's full of grief and pain. It bindeth down the soul of man as with an iron chain. She also had no tolerance for wastefulness. At dinner one evening, when Carrie was about four years old, Carrie decided she didn't want to eat the crust of her bread. First, she tucked it beneath the edge of her plate, but her mother easily spotted it and demanded she finish it. I did as long as her eye was upon me, but soon smuggled the offending crust outdoors she wrote, where she tossed it up onto the roof. A few days later, her mother miraculously found the crust and confronted her daughter with it. She stood over her until every last crumb was swallowed, meanwhile quoting this verse. 
Willful waste makes woeful want, and sometimes you may say, Oh, how I wish I had the crust that once I threw away. One of Eliza's favorite songs was Croppy Boy. Here is Neve Parsons' beautiful rendition. It was early, early in the spring The small birds they did sweetly sing Sounding their notes from tree to tree And the song they sang was old Ireland free It was early, early last Thursday night The yeoman's cavalry gave me a fright The yeoman's cavalry was my downfall When I was taken to Lord Cornwall Twas in his guardhouse where I was laid And in his parlour where I was tried My sentence passed and my spirits low When to Duncanon I was forced to go As I was marching down through the street The drums and fives did play so sweet The drums and fives so sweetly played As we were marching so far away As I was marching by my father's my brother William stood on the floor My aged father did grieveful sore And my tender mother her hair she tore When my sister Mary heard the express She ran downstairs in her morning dress Saying five hundred guineas I would lay down To see you march through Wexford town As I was marching through Wexford street My sister Mary I chanced to meet That false young woman did me betray and for one bare guinea swore my life away. As I was marching o'er Wexford Hill, Oh, who could blame me to cry my fill? I looked behind and I looked before, But my tender mother I could see no more. I wore the dark and I wore the blue I wore the grey and the orange too I forsook all colours and did them deny I wore the green and for it I died 
When I was mounted on the gallows high, my aged father was standing by. My aged father did me deny, and the name he gave me was the Croppy Boy. When I am taken to my grave, a decent funeral, pray let me have. Come all good people, as you pass me by, say the Lord have pity on the croppy boy. When asked his occupation on the 1881 census, George Craft Spinney responded, Lumberman. He owned his own sawmill along the Little River, a mere mile from home. Family-owned and operated sawmills had been built on every stream and river throughout Nova Scotia in the 18th and 19th centuries. Carrie remembered standing on the large flat rocks by the lake with her brother and sister just as the sun was sinking behind the trees. They waited quietly, listening for the sound of their father whistling, signaling to them he was on his way home for supper. She wrote that father never was very tall, and there was a decided stoop to his shoulders. Some said the stoop was caused from carrying too many heavy loads on his shoulders. He had no use for horses, and would carry heavy timbers out of the woods on his back, while a horse might be eating its head off in the stable at home. His hair was reddish-brown, and so was his full beard. His eyes were as blue as they could very well be. He was one of the most optimistic of men. Things were seldom so black, but he could find a rift in the clouds somewhere. He had an almost childlike faith in better things to come. He had a quick temper, but it was over in a flash. On the rare occasions when he did get discouraged, he'd sit with his elbows on his knees, his pipe between his hands. Somebody always steps on me plans, he'd say. On these occasions, his wife quickly intervened to comfort him. She'd make him a strong cup of tea, and after George had emptied his cup, she read the tea leaves, just as her mother-in-law had taught her. Carrie explained the process. He'd turn his cup three times around in his saucer, bottom side up, you understand, then it was passed three times about his head as he mentally made a wish. This done, the cup was placed in front of mother, and she'd read him a wonderful fortune of better times to come, which she professed to see in his tea leaves. Finally fortified by mother's cheerfulness, the soothing influence of the hot tea, and the hope of better things to come, he would spring to his feet, a whole new set of plans already seething in his head, stopping just long enough to light his pipe with a glowing ember from the fire. He'd start for the door with the attitude of one who knew he could lick the world single-handed without half-trying. Economically, he lived in a period of occupational pluralism, where several streams of income were necessary to support a family. So, in addition to his sawmill, in the winter he set traps for beaver, mink, muskrat, otter, and fox, and sold the pelts. He made baskets and axe handles to sell at the market in town. He maintained a small farm, growing most of the family's produce, and they also kept a flock of sheep. Kerry remembered he had his own special songs he sang as he shaped his axe handles. When he'd finished, he'd swing it back and forth between the first two fingers of his right hand while he sang a lively Irish tune, 
darling old stick, to which he kept perfect time. It was Grandfather Long who must have taught him that trick, and likely the song as well. No recording of this song exists, but it was included in her songbook, A Heritage of Songs. Among George's best-loved songs were ones he learned aboard ship in his sailing days. This is me singing James and Florence, with Cat Eggleston on guitar and John Daly on Scottish small pipes. Florence was a damsel, so virtuous and kind And young Jimmy was a jolly sailor bold Adieu, lovely Florence, one morning he did say I'm called, I am forced for to go Unto that foreign shore where the cannon loud do roar And aloft when the stormy winds do blow She wept in despair and she tore her lovely hair When he told her he must depart She broke a ring in two Saying here's one half for you And the other one she pressed unto her heart She said I'm not afraid There's none can me persuade For I am determined for to go Unto that foreign shore Where the cannon loud do roar And protect you when the stormy winds do blow She went aloft when the stormy winds did blow The captain said your love is bold Here's fifty pound in gold With you to get married I will go I never beheld a maid who never was afraid She went aloft when the stormy winds did blow Admired by all around in the country and the town Respected wherever they did go soft in the times they went aloft and they listened when the stormy winds did blow and they listened when the stormy winds did blow and they listened when the stormy winds did blow None of this story would be complete without Anson. Born a full 20 years before Carrie, she described him. 
He was the tallest as well as the oldest. He stood six feet six inches tall in his stocking feet when he served in the militia. His hair was black and curly, his eyes sharp and piercingly dark under bushy eyebrows. On one occasion, Anson was assigned the task of watching his younger brothers and sisters, about seven years before Carrie was born. Carrie heard the following story told time and again. One day, when mother and father were both away from home, Anson, being the eldest of the children, was left to take care of the younger ones. Brother Will was a baby at the time. For a while, Anson kept the others amused, but after a time, he grew tired of well-doing and began looking about for something different to do. His roving eyes caught sight of Father's gun, which he always kept hung up on the wall. Anson brightened up as he thought of a grand new game to play. Let's play hunting, said he. I'll be the hunter, and I'm hunting for a bear, and there it is. He pointed at the dog who lay on the floor. Baby Will was sitting beside him with his chubby arm around the dog's neck. All in fun, Anson aimed between the dog's eyes and pulled the trigger. There was a deafening report, and when the smoke cleared away, there lay the dog as dead as a doornail. As luck would have it, Will wasn't so much as scratched. Carrie said Anson knew more songs than anyone she ever knew. His large repertoire earned him a reputation among other singers. She remembered that oftentimes men would have singing matches in taverns. The one who had been outsung paid for the drinks all around. Anson frequently took part in these singing matches, and usually won. Songs were in generous supply in the Spinney household, but in other parts of the world they were for sale on street corners in the form of ballad sheets. Carrie wrote, I remember hearing Brother Anson tell of a conversation which he'd had with an Irishman once. The Irishman made the remark that Anson's songs must have cost him a lot of money. Why, no, answered Anson. I didn't pay anything for them. Well, said the Irishman, I had to pay for every song that I learned. I even had to pay my own father for every song which I learned from him. There was no fee exacted in the Spinney household, except that if you learned a new one, you were obliged to sing it for the others. Anson was a fine singer, but his favorite instrument was the fiddle, his first one he'd made himself. There is an old picture of him taken in the late 1800s, standing with his fiddle in front of a tree. When he tucked the instrument under his chin and delicately drew the bow across the strings, Carrie watched in rapt attention. She wrote, His body swayed from side to side as he played, and how he would trot his large foot, he wore a number 11 shoe, in time to the music. Carrie tells how she used to creep so close to him as he played that he nearly hit her with his elbow. He played such rollicking airs as Kitty Kick Up the Heels, Croppies Lay Down, a few Welsh tunes he'd learned from his grandmother Spinney, others from his grandmother Long, and those he'd heard the Scottish pipers playing while he was training for the militia. Of all her siblings, it was with Anson whom she shared an enduring love and aptitude for music. Both were blessed with the ability to recall a melody from just one listen. In a dialogue with Alan Lomax in 1941, he casually remarks that it must have been easy for her family to remember all the songs if they could do so, having heard it only once. She corrects him and says, Only Anson and I could do that. It was Anson who learned the songs of his grandmothers in the years before his half-siblings were born, serving as a veritable link in the chain, 
carrying the old songs to the next generation. This fact alone verifies that it is these two, Carrie and Anson, whom we have to thank for saving at least four generations of their family's music. Without them, it surely would have been lost. One of the few songs in the collection that can be traced back five generations from Carrie came from her maternal great-great-grandmother. On a recording from the Eloise Hubbard Linscott collection, Carrie states she learned it from her mother. It is The Lass Among the Heather and is sung by Nora Rhodes. As I was coming home from the fair at Biltimore, I met a pretty lass, she was fairer than Diana, oh. I asked her where she lived as we jogged along together, oh. On Bonnie Mountain's side, she replied, among the heather, oh. Oh, lassie, I am in love with you, you have so many charms, oh. Oh, lassie, I'm in love with you, to you my bosom yearns, oh. A blink of your blue eye, oh, your person is so charming, oh. Right gladly would I wed with you, you lass among the heather, oh. Oh, young man, do you think that I am so easy taken, oh. Oh, young man, do you think I believe what you are saying, oh? I'm happy and I'm weel with me feather and me mither, oh. T'would take a cunning lad for to ween me frae the heather, oh. Oh, lassie, condescend and don't be so cruel, oh. Oh, lassie, condescend and grant a kiss to your own jewel, oh. If I should grant you one kiss, you'd surely want another, oh. So take it as you will, I'm the lass among the heather, oh. Oh, then we jogged along till we came to her mither, oh. Now she has given her consent, and we are joined together, oh. In happiness and peace, we go jogging on together, oh. And Jeanie blessed the day she kissed the lad among the heather, oh. From all indications, it's clear the Spinneys were a highly literate family. They drew from a deep well of sayings, expressions, and verse. They produced poets and singers, recounted stories, and read every book, newspaper, and magazine they could get their hands on. It's not surprising, therefore, that there should be at least a couple original songs in the mix. A fragment appears in the main manuscript, Carrie's unpublished songbook discovered just a few years ago in Gorham, Maine. In it, she wrote... There was an old black-and-white plaid shawl that always hung on a nail near the outer door. When mother or one of the older girls had to go out of doors, they would wrap themselves in this old shawl. One day, my sister Margaret came in singing a verse of a song that she had made up about the old plaid shawl. I can recall only the last two lines, which were oftenest sung. When I'm in some foreign country, I'll think of you all, 
and I'll often sing the tune of the old plaid shawl. Somehow these lines were a harbinger of things to come, as the day was fast approaching when they would all be living in another country, nostalgic for the old ways, remembering the sweet details of their home in Nova Scotia. Another of Carrie's sisters and close confidant was Bertha. She was present throughout Carrie's life into old age, even dancing a jig at Carrie's 50th wedding anniversary, according to those I spoke with who were there to witness it. Bertha, the romantic, the poet, and the family wordsmith, she would go off alone quietly scratching out a verse or poem on her slate. While Carrie could recall a tune from just one listen, she relied on Bertha to remember all of the words. Carrie said, Bertha was very fond of Scott's poem, The Lady of the Lake, and used to like to pretend that she was the fair Ellen herself. She made quite a picture, I thought, as she pulled herself out on her lake in the old board, with her long black hair unbound, streaming out behind her in the breeze. During the first weeks of summer, the entire lower portion of the lake exploded with white pond lilies, as it still does today. In a moment of inspiration, Bertha composed this poem and entitled it, The Water Lily. It is read by Bertha's granddaughter, Marie York. The Water Lily, thou emblem of purity, precious and rare, there is no other flower so sweet and so fair. The rose is called queen, there's no title for thee, but of all the flowers thou art dearest to me. The families who lived near and around the lake formed a community of reciprocity and acts of neighborliness. Carrie relays several examples of the various ways they gathered socially, including frolics, as they were called, where food was served followed by music and dancing. One family in particular stood out in Carrie's memory. They were the Irvins, Joseph and Ollie, and their sons. Carrie wrote, I suppose we should have been ashamed of ourselves, but we had many a good laugh at the expense of the Irvin family. We didn't do it maliciously. It was just our way to laugh at any and everything. The Spinney family did like to have their fun. The Irvin home was just a short way up the path on the western side of the lake. Apparently, Mrs. Irvin was illiterate, but somebody taught her her letters, O-I, for Ollie Irvin. She took a liking to that and began labeling her personal items. Then she learned other letters and would label her pies, T-M, for Tis Mints, and T-M, for Taint Mints. The Spinneys had a riot with that one. On another day, George and Eliza were walking up the road to visit them. As they drew near, they heard an unearthly noise, and George exclaimed, "'We'd best hurry. One of the creatures is hung up in the barn and is choking to death.' They hurried along as the noise continued. Suddenly, Eliza stopped and began laughing. That's not the creature, she said. It's the Irvin singing. Singing, George answered. I never heard such noise from cat or dog. Mrs. Irvin met them at the door with a welcoming smile. Joseph is gone, she said, and the boys and I were so lonesome that we were singing together. It sounded real good. One of the Irvin boys often requested Eliza sing the song about the three chains that hung right fair down. He didn't know the title was The Bold Fisherman. Carrie recorded it in the spring of 1941 at the Library of Congress with song collector Alan Lomax. As I walked out one morning fair, 
Down by the ocean wide, it was there I spied a bold fisherman come rowing o'er the tide, come rowing o'er the tide, come rowing o'er the tide. It was there I spied a bold fisherman come rowing o'er the tide. Good morning, bold fisherman. What brings you here this way? All for to court some lady fair, all on the rising waves, all on the rising waves, all on the rising waves. All for to court some lady fair, all on the rising waves. Then he took off his morning gown and threw it on the ground, and there she espied three chains of gold, all from his neck hung down, all from his neck hung down, all from his neck hung down, and there she espied three chains of gold, all from his neck hung down. Then down upon her bended knees, your pardon, sir, I crave, for calling you a bold fisherman, all on the rising waves, all on the rising waves, all on the rising waves, for calling you a bold fisherman, all on the rising waves. Arise, arise, my pretty fair maid, and married we will be, and then you will have your bold fisherman to row you o'er the sea, to row you o'er the sea, to row you o'er the sea, and then you will have your bold fisherman to row you o'er the sea. Arise, arise, my pretty fair maid, and married we will be, and then you will have your bold fisherman to row you o'er the sea, to row you o'er the sea, to row you o'er the sea, and then you will have your bold fisherman to row you o'er the sea. Oh, now this couple they are wed, and happily reside, and now she has her bold fisherman to row her o'er the tide, to row her o'er the tide, to row her o'er the tide, and now she has her bold fisherman to row her o'er the tide. Carrie was five years old as the Christmas of 1884 drew near. On the afternoon of Christmas Eve, her mother sent her 12-year-old brother Will over to Uncle Tom's on an errand. He placed a folded bag under his arm and promised he'd be home as soon as possible. Everyone was busy and didn't notice how fast the time was speeding by and that night was fast coming on. Finally, Mrs. Irvin came rushing in. She was crying and wringing her hands. She was sure that Will and her John were both drowned in the lake. The two boys were about the same age and were together a great deal. John had seen Will going toward Uncle Tom's and had asked his mother if he could go a piece with him. She had given her consent and he'd gone out carrying his skates with him. 
He hadn't come back, and she'd gone to look for him. Quickly, Father and the other boys put on their outside wraps and went out to search for the missing pair. They called and called, but the moaning of the wind in the trees on the shore were their only answer. Finally, Will's hat was seen on the surface of the ice beside a large hole. The searchers looked into each other's faces and understood the boy's fate. The only explanation they could find was that John had parted from Will and started to skate home and gone into one of those holes that never really froze over. Will must have fallen in trying to help his friend. The next day, Christmas, the men returned to the lake to recover their bodies. The family was devastated. Eliza recalled the dream she'd had just two nights before, where she and Will were walking on the frozen lake together and she had leaned down to pick up three golden coins off the ice. It was strange. In the spring, the folded-up bag Will had been carrying was found under a tree on the shore, as though it had been hurriedly tossed there. The two boys share a single grave in the Black River Cemetery. Thank you for tuning in to the Carrie Grover Podcasts. The next recording will bring more tales from Sunken Lake and more songs and tunes straight out of the collection, all of which can be found at www.carriegroverproject.com. In closing, Kate McLeod sings Mary's Dream. The moon had climbed the highest hill, which rises to see